What up, everybody? Seth Free here. Free advice. It's not even an um, episode number. I think that it was time for me to tell my story. I get a lot of people asking me, yo, how'd you do this and when'd you do that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do an episode to like answer a lot of questions, take people through my timeline. And I think the, the advice topic for this is like um, stages in your life that you go through to get to where you want to be at. I work in a lot of industries. I work in sports, art, fashion, production, uh, what else, entertainment. And I still don't even understand where my path is going to lead to. And it, it, all the way through the journey, it, it keep going up and up and up. It was never like I, I picked one thing that I wanted to do. And I think that's a blessing for people when they can say, yeah, I'm a chef and I, I want to be a chef or I, I want to be a rapper or I want to be whatever the your calling you think it is. But to get to that, you had to take a lot of other steps. So I'm going to start from the beginning. I was born in the Bronx, New York. I had two sisters, two older sisters, mother and father. And my family moved me from New York to Philadelphia at a young age. So we moved from the Bronx, from the South Bronx to be exact, to Southwest Philadelphia. I guess they kept the South in the realm of me moving. And we moved to Southwest Philadelphia and uh, moved to a block called 56 and Willows. And it was it was like a different way of life, you know, it was row homes, coming from projects to row homes. And I just remember, you know, it was like a small community and the, the block was everything, you know. It was like people taking care of us at a young age. It was totally different than it is now. Neighbors looked out for us. It was a lady named Miss Brockington. She was like a second mother. Then I had my best friend named Miss Jazz and his mother and father, Mr. Um, Jesse and Miss Betty, they was like my parents too. So it was so many people, and it was a girl named Deshanta lived across the street who looked after me. So there was a lot of people growing up that looked after me, and actually the whole neighborhood. And I, I know that's you know that's missing from the community now that people around you in your daily life don't even people in today's world don't even want to speak to their neighbors, or they're not even trying to deal with each other. And the communication is a lost factor. So at a young age, I was like kind of. Having two older sisters, I was always to myself, love toys, love cartoons. So that's where a lot of the art starts and stems from me. And I always have this quick, this trick question I ask everybody of what was your first love? A lot of people get stuck. They're like, wow, you know, um, they be thinking like, yo, my first love was basketball or my bike and I say a lot of people's first love they don't even remember because it was it was a toy. And like your mom or your dad or somebody gave you a toy when you slept in your crib, uh, your pacifier could have looked like a toy. And the colors on that, it was vibrant and toys were vibrant things. And that's what kids loved when they was little. They loved a teddy bear. It was some type of some type of toy that you fell in love with. So, you know, when you look at toys, it was drawn first. It was a. It was some type of art that was drawn before it was made into a toy. So basically, the art turned into a toy. So that was when it clicked with me. Like, yo, I really love toys. So 
I was always buying, of course, just like every other kid growing up, a uh, male kid growing up, I was buying the G.I. Joes, the He-Mans, the Transformers, and I used to set them up in the same way now. It's kind of like how the compound looks, how the gallery looks. I used to take them out of the box, keep the box, display the box in my room. I remember one of the stories when I was growing up, I used to go to the to the stores and the malls with my mom. And say if I had seven Star Wars action figures back at the house, I would get the new one. And I'm cooked, y'all. This is just how my mind, the creative ways I've been in since I was a kid. I would get the new toy, open it. I'd be in the back seat with the toy like, yo, when we get home, you got to meet everybody else. They got to make sure they like you. And I would literally go home and I would line up six of the action figures, put them on like the dresser or the bed. And then I would make the new one literally be like, yo, so-and-so, this so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And And like kind of made this little world out of my toys. I used to bust open a bag of the flour to put them on the in the flower make make them feel like they planted snow. So I was just really imaginative at a young age. So, you know, video games, I had like first Atari, first Nintendo, a, a system called TurboGrafx 16, 3DO. So, all these things kind of went hand in hand to me. Racetracks, train sets, toys, action figures, and that was something I like. And I think it always kept my mind sharp. I think video games keeps your hand-eye coordination really sharp, makes you think fast. You know, now look at video games. It's a, it's a billion-dollar industry with all the stuff that's happening with, like, Call of Duty Online and Fortnite and all these tournaments. So I was always a part of that video game culture. And like I said, growing up having two sisters, I didn't have any brothers. So me doing a lot of things by myself, it was a lot of things that I could do by myself that could keep me op- occupied and keep my mind occupied. Fast forward, growing up and starting to come back to New York, I had an Uncle George and an Aunt Viola that lived in Queens, actually Laurelton, Queens to be exact, and it was 221st and 130th Ave, right off Merrick Boulevard. So I grew up going back and forth, me and my two older sisters going back and forth to New York, and I was like, New York started, I started feeling a different vibe going in New York and seeing hip hop in its early stages. Like, you know, an artist named Sweet T lived around the corner. Run DMC lived not too far. They was up on Hillside. Tribe Called Quest was close. LL Cool J was his grandma, didn't live too far. So I remember just always being outside on the stoop. And I, I had mad friends growing up in Queens and 221st and 130th. And we used to just always listen to music. I remember one of my friends' name was Jimmy. And he came down the street with a cassette tape. And uh, Eric B. and Rakim just came out. It was paid in full. And he played it. He's like, yo, what you think about this? And I was like, whoa. And like to hear Rakim at a young age, I was like, yo, this is this is special. And... I remember used to always learning about like Run DMC and all the groups when they first started and then going back to Philly. Like, yo, I heard this. It's crazy. People used to be like, man, whatever, man. And it got to a point going back and forth from New York to Philly. And my real name is Ryan. Um, That came way before Seth. Like, it's just 
nobody even know that my name is Ryan. But I remember I used to go back to Philly and tell everybody, like, yo, this is what's happening up New York. I seen Run DMC at the Coliseum, or I seen so-and-so on Jamaica Ave, and they'd be like, man, you lying. And it turned into this thing. Everybody in the neighborhood was like, oh, that's lying, Ryan. So it was like, wow. I'm sharing my story and these these what I'm seeing in all these events and it got to a point that I started getting sad because I was I was mad young, you know, maybe like 13, 12, coming back telling my friends what's going on and like, yo, watch when this record get down here, watch when y'all start hearing this. Nobody believed it. So I was like, all right, you know what, cool. I'm just gonna stop talking about what I'm seeing in New York because it ain't matching up at all right now. So next stage, Philadelphia just had a lot of DJs, man. And I grew up in Southwest Philly, and you know it was people like DJ Miz. It was a guy named DJ, my friend Doodles, um, Grands was a DJ. My one of my best friends, Donnie Mac, was a DJ. Uh, who else? It was so many DJs. Um, Cash Money, he lived right through the park in Yaden. And it was just like, yo, Philly got some ill DJ. But then coming back and forth from New York, hearing Red Alert on the radio and Kid Capri, and I was like, yo, wow, these, this is the, this is the next big thing. So I, I wanted to DJ. And I was super young, couldn't afford turntables at the time. And uh, I remember I got my first, God bless his soul, man, Kendall Collins was one of my good friends, and he had some turntables. I think his older brother, Terry, DJ, and he gave me a pair of turntables with techniques, but they were straight arms. So the belt couldn't even go backwards. So I was like, but I kind of learned how to blend records, and I had a Radio Shack mixer. And I remember just starting to learn how to blend records, and I was taking all my sister's old records, like Earth, Wind & Fire, Blackbird, and the OJs and Michael Jackson early records and using those records just to learn how to blend. And um, that was something that was big in New York with the blend tapes. And I was like, yo, I want to be the guy that bring blending and those mixes to Philly. And, you know, that was when later, not not I wasn't still that young, but a little later down the line, the SNS and Ron G and Doo-Wop and all of them blends was crazy. So that was, I was like, okay, I can't really pull it back and I can't really do too much because the belt wouldn't let me do that. So then I, I remember asking my parents, like, I need a better turntable. So they got me a Technique 1200, and I only had one. So I remember, like, I was working on that, and then one of my good friends named Skeetaboo, he kind of helped me get some money together, and we got the other turntable. And that's where it kind of really all started with me DJing. So then fast forward next, I used to go, I was going back and forth to New York. I was getting older and I had some of my best friends. We had a group and we, we was calling ourselves the Unknown Roughnecks. And it was crazy. We had this whole, and around that time, that's how I got the name Set Free. But that's a whole nother story. We'll get into that later. And I remember we were the Unknown Roughnecks and we grew up under some of the people when that was in Stetsasonic, Daddy O and Prince Paul. They was like our mentors at that time. And one of my one of my friends, his name was Ice, and he was really close with Run and all of the um, Run DMC squad. So we was putting our demos together, um, got a couple records, and I remember letting Run and them hear 
I remember we went up um, to Def Jam back in the day, and we went in there with like scarfs on our face and like looking looking like a mixture of Tretch and Jason from Friday the Thirteenth, like hockey masks. We just we threw all this unknown roughnecks with bandanas and scarfs, and I remember we was in the lobby, and I think it was Run. I'm not sure, but. Walked by and he was like, "Yo, if I y'all up here trying to shop a deal, y'all like y'all ready to rob somebody." Then we went in Russ's office and Russ destroyed us. Like y'all look crazy. Y'all know, I don't know what y'all trying to do. This thing, this thing, this ain't the look. Play the music. Music's alright, but y'all got a lot of work to do. So we went back home, started making, um, you know, just making more demos. And um, cousin E was the rapper, Ice was another rapper, and I was the DJ. And and that was the group, and we was like, wow, you know, we gotta we gotta keep working at it. So we, you know, it was it was it was hard. We just was doing demos and standing outside of labels and just hoping that we get a deal. So then I remember Daddy Daddy O started helping us out, and actually Daddy O had an album coming out, and we actually made a beat. The whole crew, the Unknown Roughnecks crew, we started making beats too. We got a Akai S900. We had a blue uh, SP12 sampler. So we used to hook our Akai up to the SP12. We had a Fostex 8-track. And that was how we started making our beats. So the stage of me going from a DJ to a producer, I never thought that would really ever happen. And it was like a gradual process. So we sold our, I think it was called the Truck Driver song. It was our first track that we sold to Daddy-O. I think we sold the track for like $3,000. We was like super excited. I don't even remember the year, but I know we was we was dumb happy. So now I was starting to, I was like, wow, this is really turning into something. So to go back to Philly. I'm still going back and forth between Philly and New York. And I started DJing more. I started DJing house parties. Uh, around the neighborhood, like 58th and Willows. I remember I DJed at a bar named Smitty's, and, um, Cobbs Creek Parkway, the Hideaway. And then uh, my little brother, Coco, he actually had a bowling party. He, start, he was starting to do parties, and like all the guys on my block, all of them was younger. I had like maybe 10 little brothers, and we used to sit on the step, and it was I was always an entrepreneur, and I was like, yo, man, y'all need to do, y'all need to, figure out what y'all want to do and get to it and grind to it. So Coco started doing parties. So I remember he had a party at a bowling alley, and it, I think it was it was a fight or a shooting that broke out. And I was like, ah, here we go. Like Next thing you know, I'm always in these crazy spots DJing in Philly. I was DJing in Southwest Philly. I remember me, my man Donnie Mack, and one of my partners from New York named Bemos, we went to go DJ a party in South Philly. My man Bemos drove all the way from New York to come to Philly. So me and my man Donnie, we, we put the crates in his car. We go into the the spot to do the party. Party was great, success. So we carrying the crates back out to Bemos' car, and we going back and forth. And then the, like a, the third trip we went back in, all we hear is da 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 pop, 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 da 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 so we was like, all right, everybody hit the ground, everybody screaming. So we go outside after all the shots stopped. My man Bemo, she had a red Jetta, it was fire. It was like the Jetta in the kitten play video back in the day. Or, or the, um, and it was all lit up. And 
I was just like, yo, I'm like always DJing. It's all these shootings every time I'm at a joint. So I was always shooting. So fast forward next, start DJing like Westchester University. And it's starting to get bigger. I'm starting to DJ at colleges. And I was like, yo, this is kind of cool. So my brother Jazz, who I mentioned before, he went to Penn State. So he was like, yo, you need to come up Penn State and DJ a party. And I was like, what? So I had like a brown Scooby-Doo van back in the day. It was crazy. I had a couch, a bed, a stove, a refrigerator. So used to put all our speakers in there. And I remember driving, picked up a couple of my friends from Philly, and we drove to Penn State. I got up to Penn State, and we were still young. I think I might have, he had to be, Jazz might have been like 18, and I'm probably was 19, 20. I think we one year apart. And he had his own, they had a four-bedroom apartment, big kitchen. It was just fire. So I went up there, and I did the party. I remember I went to um, New York. I went to Coliseum before I went. Not Coliseum. I went to Jamaica Ave before I went. Got some records. It was a record store named Hot Watts on Jamaica Ave. And I went and got, like, the Black Moons and the Smith & Wessons and the Leaders of New School. So I had all the new wax. And he went to Penn State called Up in Happy Valley, the main main campus. So I went up there, and it was like, when I was DJing, people was like, yo, he reminds me of home. and reminds me of New York. It reminds me of the city. Long story short, man, the party went so good. I wound up living up Penn State for three years and just DJing. Wound up got, a, got an apartment. Wound up becoming really cool with like the sororities and fraternities. Started DJing all their parties. And I was literally up there just hustling on my grind, doing a bunch of other stuff we won't even talk about, but I was just there. And I remember, so now DJing, I was like, wow, DJing's taking me all these places. And I was like, I, I learned a lot being up in a college, and it was like a hustle for me. I've always been, I'm going to find a way and I'm going to hustle. So Jazz graduated. And I remember when he graduated, he was like, yo, I'm about to go home, man. You, you, you coming home? You coming back to Philly? And I was like, nah, I'm going to chill. And in a way, I was scared. I didn't realize what I was going home to. I was like, yo, I'm just a DJ. And he got a degree in um, law. Um, everybody was getting, I think it was law that he got a degree. And everybody was getting their degrees. All my friends up there was getting their degrees going home. So I didn't really go home yet. Fast forward a couple other months went by and I it just, it wasn't working out. I was like, you know, the parties were slowing up. Things was changing. So I went home and I was like, you know what? I got to get back, get back to this DJ. So around that time, that was when the, the Grave Diggers was popping off, uh, which was a, a group that was birthed by Prince Paul that was all the members on Tommy Boy. And it was Prince Paul, um, Prince Rakim, which was RZA, Fruquan that was in Statisonic, and Too Poetic. So they all had a group. So I kind of just started going back and forth to New York again in Long Island and and coming up under them, like learning the music industry, learning more about DJ and learning more about production. So I remember one day I got a call from Prince Paul and he said, yo, I got a trip that is in Switzerland. I spoke to DJ, but I can't go. You want to do it? And I was like, wow. I was like, me? Just by myself? He was like, yeah. Um, 
this is the promoter. The promoter name was Finn. And he was like, yo, you, you, you can take the gig. And I was like, okay, I, I'm going to do it. I'd never been out the country. Had to get my passport. I think I was 20 years old. It was either 19 or 20. And I remember my mom and dad driving me to JFK by myself. Um, two of my peoples from my group, cousin E and aunt, they met us at the airport. And I was like, yo, my mom broke down crying. My dad was like, we're sending our son. And I went to Zurich by myself with a bag of records and a suitcase. And I went over there and I DJed this event and I got to see the world, you know, being in, being in Switzerland, nobody was speaking English, everybody was speaking French. It was, it was a, a crazy time. And, you know, I was just like, wow. But I learned a lot at that moment when I was over there and I was like, yo, I'm by myself. But, you know, I, I had a dream, I had a goal, like, of knowing what I was doing. It was the right thing to do, to venture out, believe in myself, believe in my dream. Um, so the trip was great. I came back home and it had a whole new aspiration of life, like, yo, I'm really DJing overseas at a club. And everybody overseas loved hip-hop. They knew the music. And I was like, wow. So it was like a life-changing experience. Switzerland to this day in Zurich is still one of my favorite spots in the world. So now I'm come back home, and I was like, yo, I got to really take this serious. Like, I was hearing other beats and other music, and it made me like want to elevate my craft and everything. So I was like, you know what? I want to build a studio. So it was like time to build a studio. I remember I got, um, I had my turntables always, but then I was like, yo, I want to get equipment. So my first equipment I got was, it was an ASR-10 rack mount. And then I had a Alesi's, I think it was the Alesi's HR-16. It was a black one at first. And then I learned, so Prince Paul started showing me how to make beats. Poetic started showing me how to make beats. They came down, helped me set my studio up. So I was just learning how to make beats. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So during that process, I just started learning how to make beats. And I was still DJing, going back and forth. Like I said, up under Paul and up under Daddy-O for a while. And then Paul called me again and said, yo, I'm doing an album, which was called Psychoanalysis. And he was like, yo, I can't DJ for the album I'm on the tour because I'm going to be on stage as the professor of the psychoanalysis tour. So I was, he was like, you want to do it? And I was like, bet, totally. So we went, went back to, back to Europe. We did all these spots, and I was the DJ on stage. And I remember I, I bought my uh, Alessis HR-16. I hooked it up to the sampler because that was how we did all the sound effects on stage. And, you know, I got to see Berlin. I remember, I was seeing Berlin, but we performed somewhere on tour and we didn't even know it was a skinhead club. And I remember performing. And I always used to go out and warm the crowd up and warm the stage up. And there was people was in the crowd like chanting, hurry up, you nigga. Hurry up, black man, hurry up, blood, bring the artist to the stage. And I was like, yo, why is this feeling a little crazy like this? 
And I remember I went I went backstage. I was like, yo, Paul, Bemo, Don Newkirk, the whole team. I was like, yo, we got to hurry up, man. They getting rowdy out front. Like, so I remember I went back out front to DJ some more. And somebody threw a bottle at me. Woof. Threw it on the stage. And I was like, Phew. a duck like Bush getting the shoot thrown at him. And I was like, yo, we about to bring the, bring the group out. We ready to perform. And at the end of the night, we was like, we went and talked to promoters, and they was like, you know, on stage, y'all are not niggas, y'all are not blacks, y'all entertainers. But as soon as you get off stage, it's back to normal. And I was like, wow. So it was like, I learned a lot on that tour. And I remember the last day of the show, we, we performed in London at the Jazz Cafe. Well, the Jazz Cafe, the Jazz House. And I was DJing. And uh, I met an A&R guy named Max Nichols who worked at Tommy Boy. And he gave me his car, and he was like, yo, you did great, great job. He was like, when you get back to East America, give me a call. Let's hook up. So I was like, oh, word, bet. And I was like, yo, I met like a real A&R. And I, at that point, I didn't even know what – I didn't have a group or nothing. I just was DJing. So then I remember coming back home, and I got a call to DJ in – in Willenboro. Never even heard of Willenboro. Uh, and it was a park. So I went and DJ and uh it was the two kids out there. They, I think their names was the Hunters. But they like my brothers too. Still to this day it was one named Yanti, the other named Mark. And they was they was like light skinned, shorter guys. They were a little shorter than me. They had like blind gold blind dreads. They were just ill. They was like they remind me of like a doctor, different DOS effects back then. I was like, yo. And the kid, Yanti, he's just like, he's a genius. He's somebody that his mind is like my mind. It's just, it's not even, to this day, his mind is still more advanced than a lot of things and people I know. And me and Yanti clicked. And I remember DJing at the park. He was like, yo, we got to hook up, man. I know a bunch of rappers. And Yanti knows a lot of people, and he know a lot of rap. He, he's also a good person that picks talent. So he was like, yo, I got a group. And I was like, yo, I'm building a studio. And I was like, soon as you get done, let's really, you know, let's put it together. So months went by. I called him. And next thing you know, Yant was like, all right, I got the group. So it was Mark, Yanti, me. Um, Mark had a little brother, which name was Bump. And then there was two other MCs from Atlantic City named Vaughn and Wiz. And then one other kid named L, Lawrence. So we 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 came together and we was like, yo, this was like Wu Tang was popping. We was like, yo, we we got we gonna be on the Wu. We're gonna be another version of the Wu with Atlantic City, Philadelphia, and Jersey all combined. So we had a seven-man group. And we came up with this name called Deadly Snakes. We just was like, you know, the I don't know how it came. He was like, yo, the MC is spitting venom, yada, yada, yada. So I remember I had Max Nichols' card. And I was like, yo, we're going to get this demo together. I'm going to call Max Nichols. But besides that, I remember going back and forth to New York to used to get all the labels' numbers. So I used to go to the phone booths in New York and rip out the yellow pages and the white pages just to get the numbers to the record labels, come back to Philly and call all the labels up. So I remember me and Yanti used to take trips to New York with the demo and the shopping around and just be walking around. 
I mean, walking from like 14th to 57th, wherever we can get a meeting at. So we had our demo together, and we set the meeting up with Max Nichols, and Max Nichols was like, yo, he really liked the record. Um, and I remember it was a record. I forgot the name of the record now. I don't know if it was called. It was a record I produced. It was called The Evil That Men Do, The Evil That Snakes Do. And it was the record that got us our deal. And then we got a deal. At first we were signing for an EP deal, and then it changed, and it turned into a full album deal. So that was how I got my first record deal. Then I had a best friend across the street from me on the block in Philly. His name was uh, Troy Taylor. His name was Taz, and he DJed. Me, actually, me and him used to work in his grandfather's record store in Camden, New Jersey called Dad's Record. And Taz was nice. Like He was another person when I started DJing. He used to show me tricks, and he was already producing. But we never came together. He had like his own world, and I had my own world. But once we got a deal, we finally, and like we always was close and cool. And I went to him and was like, yo, dude, you should, you should be down with the group. You should, you should come rock with us and make beats. And so we started, he kind of bought his equipment and put it in my studio. And then, you know, we in Southwest Philly in the, in the deep in the trenches. And I had a studio built with a vocal booth. We had like a, a board, we had a 64 channel board. Um, and we was really like really rocking. So Taz kind of produced this track. Uh, we became partners and we like co-produced, but he produced a track um, called Wild West and he predominantly made more of that track. And um, we just did a, a great project. And our first tracks that we sold to Tommy Boy was for the Jet Li Black Mass soundtrack. And we landed two tracks on that. All the group was on it. And it was it just went crazy. It was incredible. So through the journey, I went from DJ to producer and now I got my first record deal. And I was like, whoa. So, you know, I got the group signed. I made sure that I was in the contract because, you know, I didn't want to make sure, I didn't want to be not in the contract and just be the DJ or be a producer and then get kicked out of the group. That wasn't, I wasn't trying to let that happen. You know, I, I kind of understood business enough to make sure that I was in the deal. So fast forward, we kept going, we kept going. And then um, the group, we got our money. We did photo shoots. We did all. We did Miami. We did all. We was we was a buzzing young group, you know. Uh, Yanti built a studio in Jersey. I had my studio in Philly, and we kind of never had management. So we still we found management. Uh, uh, I forgot my, our manager who was working at the time. His name was Damon. I forgot his last name though. But he he came and started trying to help us bring a structure, and then it got to a point where. One of the members in our group, which was Bunk, he was out. And then next thing you know, he he was a part of major figures. He left the group. So then the group started outgrowing my studio. It was like, we can't get effects here. We can't get the right sound. You know, my mom and dad was upstairs. and You know, it just wasn't the studio vibe that I felt the group wanted anymore. Um, it just, I think the group outgrew it, you know. Then Yanti had a studio, so a lot of people would start to go to Yanti's studio. Then it started coming to a point where, you know, every Yant started making beats. Um, I was making beats. We had another producer with the group named Scott making beats. Taz was making beats. So it became like, now it became the scene in the Joker 
where we was just all, and it was a good, it was competition. We was all going against each other for beats and everything like that. And then I kind of started feeling myself being removed from the role I played in the beginning. I was like, wow, we're, things just started changing. And everybody was outgrowing, people was growing each other. And then I was still doing my DJing. So I was at a record store and a guy named Peter Smalls came in with a book bag, a bag, and he was like, yo, this is a new sneaker coming out called And Ones. What do you think about this? And I was at Rich Medina's and Bobito's store called Footworks. And I was like, yo, this sneaker's trash. But if you connect this sneaker to hip hop, it'll blow, it'll, it'll go. So he was like, all right, what you doing tomorrow? I was like, I'm chilling, I'm just getting ready. Meanwhile, the group, our group was performing in Miami at a WWF wrestling thing at Fountain Blue. And I remember DJ ran from Philly with DJing. So we went down there, we performed, and the and one guy was like, yo, I'm gonna send you some product. And he sent me 40 pair of pants, like shorts, t-shirts, and sneakers. And that was how I got all the and one the connection to and one. Then I remember I remember going to the 7-Eleven, buying copies of Delt like Right On Magazine, The Source, Word Up. And then I turned my hotel room into like a showroom. And I remember putting all the Deadly Snakes in the gear, Joe Claire, Smith and Wesson, Summer Daylight, Some the Buster. And that I, I I gave all the product out to all the rappers. And then I remember taking pictures of the rappers wearing it and then making sure that everybody that was in the magazine, I tried to get gear on them. Fast forward, gets back to Philly, I go back up to N1 headquarters and I put the, all the pictures on the table and I put the books on the table. And I was like, yo, this is what y'all need to do with y'all clothing. If y'all do this with your clothing, it'll take y'all out of here. I remember Pete introduced me to... J. Cohen Gilbert, which was the owner of N1, and he's like, you want a job? I was like, yeah. And he was like, you want to do product placement? And I was like, what's that? He was like, say it backwards. And I was like, oh, placement of product. And he's like, that's what you do. And that's how I kind of got my job at N1. And then from there, it was like, I kind of felt like, okay, this is the next stage in my life. So I kind of fell back from the Deadly Snakes, but the group kind of just kept doing what they needed to do, and I removed myself pretty much and was focusing on N1. 